Hi folks and happy Monday. If it is indeed Monday you're listening to this podcast, I can just about hear the strains of Garth Brooks from Croke Park on a Sunday evening as he's uh, kicking into his tunes. Listen, we are asking for your support. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise And for the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, you get access to these podcasts as quickly as we do them, including the six that we've already got scheduled for the week ahead. And you can come along to these live shows that we do online with our audience and have the conversation once we turn the mics off. We all open it up and we have the chats. So please, 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 maybe this week, try it out. Have a go. Try for a month. There's no contract. You can cancel at the end of a month. And for that, you get a ton of extra podcasts. You don't have to listen to these, please. So it's plea free. And you'll, you'll have already have heard some of the best pre-budget coverage that's around and I'm not just saying that because I'm because I'm biased I'm saying it because Rory has been knocking it out of the park I could try and sell you on the fact that there's over a thousand podcasts there but they're really just asking you to help us it's really that simple we need help to keep this show on the road we have so many people giving their time their energy and we've we've bills coming out of our ears because we're trying to build something different we don't want ads we don't want sponsors we don't want to be behooven to corporate interests podcasting has become very corporate and we just want to push back against that and the only way we do that is you guys helping us stay independent please consider joining us it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise and please enjoy what was probably one of the most fun sunday specials considering how dark the topics were that we've done in an age talk to you all soon thanks for the support take care Hello and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday Special. Today we are joined by Shamim Malekian from Dublin Inquirer. We are joined by Gavin Sheridan from Storyful. We are joined from Dara Ed Adelaide from PPB. And of course, we are joined by Tony Groves of the Tortoise Shack, also known for his famous stints on RTE. Tony. You have to turn on your mic, bud. You got everything wrong. <laughs> every, <like> every <laughs> single word of that was wrong. And, and apologies to everybody who just listened. But nonetheless, we have to we have to go on. I do. Uh, sorry. I, I know we started off just on, on that. Uh, please, trust me, folks. It'll get better from here. I do want to cover very briefly. Mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the investigation of the St. John's Ambulance um, Historical Child Sexual Abuse. Uh, Ali Bracken had a really powerful story today, and I do think it bears mentioning that the the fact that the likes of Mick Finnegan spoke out meant that some other victims and survivors have come forward. And I think that's really, really powerful. And I don't I don't want to turn away from that. Another thing that we mentioned at the outset last week was the awful events in Tala. And I do think it's really important to mention the quiet home of acceptable racism that we've heard all week when it came to members of the traveling community. I'm fed up of it. We should all be fed up of it. Uh, there seems to be this this uh, acceptable level that we can have. And we've all seen the 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 um, commentary and things like that this week. So it's it's really, really something that as a society, we need to be honest about. It it, it, it shouldn't be lingering as long as it is. Um, and it, it also feeds into the wider thing about how we treat people in this country whether there's there's a there's a hierarchy and brings us actually to the first story we want to cover with um Shamim Malik Nyan Martin from the Dublin Inquirer um and Shamim you had look listeners won't be will be aware of the work you've continued to do when it comes to people who are trying to navigate our uh, 
direct provision immigrant system and, and how they're treated. But you had a story about a minor um how they were treated this week. Can you do you mind sharing it for listeners who who've missed out on it? Because it's a really important story, in my opinion. Um, so first of all, uh, I think I should just give some context um, to your listeners. Um, the thing is, when somebody comes here and they might not have a birth certificate or a proper ID with them when they travel to Ireland, uh, and if they say they're underage, uh, basically, the, 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 they would be referred to Tesla and Tesla then um, can dispute their ages for various reasons and um, they can they can carry out what is called an age assessment procedure even though um, they don't have any guidelines on how to go about and do this even though the law says the Child Care Act basically doesn't give them any right to do it. Uh, but basically this happens. So age disputes are something that happens often and there are many uh, the, the kind of um, figures that we have right now shows that um, if somebody's age is, is disputed, they'd be more likely to not, the age to not get accepted than to be accepted. So the, there's a higher rate of not getting accepted if it's disputed. So um, the person I talked to, I became aware of somebody who was living in a travel lodge in Avon Road. And this was a 16-year-old boy that I went to see. And um, he initially was accepted. He was put in a care home, but then Tusla said, well, if you don't have your birth certificates on you. This child was taken out of a care home, put uh, then first uh, went into City West, a couple of nights there, and then Red Cow Moran Hotel, which is a pre-reception center. And then um, if, since May, he was living in Navan Road. He was sharing a room with an adult man, you know, and um, like he clearly looked like a child and the birth certificate that he had people sent his birth certificates from home. He has showed it to IPO on 30, 30th, I think, of May. But uh, he was could continue to live um, with adults and it was considered an adult. So so basically that was the story, you know. Yeah, but you've had this is continues to happen. I, I think about it must be over a year ago. The last time you covered a, an example of a, a young man from a young child from Afghanistan who they decided went, oh, let's see your teeth. Let's check your stomach. Let's check, you know, let's do all of these things. It's it's all. Well, again, we opened this conversation by saying there's an acceptable hierarchy, a level of this where it's tolerated and it's clearly tolerated um, at, at this level. What was the outcome uh, following your investigation, Shamim? And, and, you know, are you hopeful that that some that we can get a handle on this? Because I, I worry that you continue to do this great work, but not enough people care. Um, so, so in this particular case, I became aware that he messaged me and said, yeah, Tesla called him and said they accept his age now. And um, yesterday, uh, no, on Friday, so basically they said they would take him again into the care home. So that case was sorted. But like, I'm not aware of, like, I might not become aware of all the cases. And um, when you ask for figures of how many people are like that, are out there, uh, D- Department of Children and Equality sends you to Tusla, Tusla sends you to Department of Children and Equality, and then you have to put a freedom of information request. And um, I'm actually having a very hard time with Children and Equality's FOI office at the moment. So, so basically, um, unless you become aware of a case and it get publicized, um, they might do something about it, but there are lots of cases that not become aware of it, but some people are also they're just afraid of talking to journalists and like it's difficult also for me I was very conscious of the fact of talking to somebody who was so young you know 
um, it's difficult, but the thing is there should be guidelines. So the bottom line is that there's no guidelines on how to assess the age of a child right now. Uh, and I I became aware of this when I put a freedom of information request to, so to get these guidelines. And then they said, we actually don't have it. Um, and um, I guess if there were guidelines, so there were more transparency to the process, so they would know that how to go about assessing a child's age. And, you know, as you mentioned, the physical assessment is something that um, European, some pediatricians in, in Europe said this is so unethical to... Um, to check in patient that isn't ill, you know, just to say how old they are, uh, that they are kind of uh, encouraging others not to go about doing it, you know, so it can be very controversial. It's controversial over, is being polite about it, Shamim. It's over a year, Shamim, since you wrote that FOI originally, finding out that they had no guidelines. It's well over a year now at this stage. Has there been any developments since that time? Has there been any political um, questioning, backing about it? Unfortunately, no. I think unaccompanied minors is an area that's very neglected. I don't see it being raised at the doll much. Sometimes some TDs, one or two TDs bring it up, but it's a very neglected area in general, unfortunately. And um, like, uh, it's funny because now, I don't know if you read in the article, Department of Children and Equality told me that actually what they do is an age assessment. It is an assessment to see if somebody is eligible for support that children's gas so it's it's like very i don't know it's like playing with wars you know yeah, playing around yeah, wars yeah. saying uh, they don't really do that but, but they're that, actually yeah, doing it we're not doing it we're doing it to make sure that you're getting the right level of uh of supports or whatever it is it's, it's a phenomenal misuse of um of language and i think people uh, like i saw gavin nodding your head you, you were gavin you'd be aware of so many people being employed to actually get the right formation of words as opposed to solving a problem and this is clearly a huge problem yeah, I think um, with FOI, sometimes they're, they're parsing your request to within an inch of its life, trying to say, well, you didn't ask for that specifically. You asked for something kind of similar to that, but not actually that particular thing, because you used the incorrect formulation of, of words, which can be quite frustrating because it's clear that they understood the intent of the request, but not, but then they they parsed the sentence in a very specific way. And then say, oh, oh, you didn't ask for that particular thing. And you're like, I think you. I think I think you're reading way too. Reading my sentence structure way too specific, specifically. It's like getting into a legal fight at the first stage of a of a request process. Mm, unfortunately, this is where it is. Look, but I will say again, listeners, Dublin Choir do phenomenal work, and it's not just on this beat. They do it across the board, whether it be on housing, social issues, and and general reporting. Um, and have you had a go at me this week as the mayor of Dublin? Um, not not uh, stepping up and and getting rid of that illegal dump, but uh, you know, I I I, I was I I let that go. Uh, but thanks, Shamim, for that. Um, we do need to move on, Martin. Yeah, uh, Gavin. So much has happened in the last 48 hours in the in the in Ukraine and politically too. I've tried to keep up with it, but the advances are so fast and they are so quick. Can you please just give us sort of a, a handle on what's going on at the present moment? So yeah, it has been an interesting uh, couple of weeks. Um so I guess the, the best way to, to think about it is that um back on the 28th of August. The Ukrainians launched a counteroffensive in Kherson. Now, I'm going to mention a few place names here. It might be useful to have a map open in front of you um, because it's quite a big country. But 
The Ukrainians launched a, a, a significant counteroffensive in Kherson, having spent weeks using US supplied long range missiles to kind of uh, try and take out Russian ammo dumps and Russian command and control centers uh, um, deep behind their lines. And they launched this counteroffensive on Monday, the 20, 28th, slash Sunday, Monday, 28th, 29th of August. And they were having initial kind of slow success, as, as I guess the best way is to describe it, against Russian forces. Um, but then last week, they started another offensive in the northeast of the country, in Kharkiv Oblast, um, which the Russians were not expecting. They said they were kind of expecting it, but they had no idea of the scale because it looks like the Ukrainians did a really good job of forming up all of their forces quietly and secretly and uh, keeping really good operational security to keep their forces um, uh, from being detected. And they launched a massive counterattack last, uh, last, last Sunday slash Monday. And they spent all week attacking the Russian forces across Kharkiv Oblast. And ultimately, yesterday, took the main city, Izium, which was the main Russian base for, for uh, their, uh, essentially, their headquarters in the area. Um, they've taken probably two and a half thousand square kilometers in seven, less than seven days. It's one of the biggest, it's the biggest success of the Ukrainian military. And I think it's caught a lot of people by surprise about how big and fast it happened. But, uh, you know, there was a very good piece by one of the Ukrainian um, uh, intelligence officers who works with Zelensky explaining why it was successful. And it was pretty simple. What they did was they kind of signaled to Russia, we're going to attack Kherson. And it was widely known, even I was in Ukraine a few weeks ago, and it, it was widely being discussed about the upcoming counteroffensive in Kherson. Um, and the Russians knew a Kherson counteroffensive was coming. So what they did was they took loads of their really good troops from the Donbass and shuffled them over to Kherson to try and protect Kherson from this upcoming offensive. But obviously, they only have so many troops to go around, about 200,000 at the start of the war. And that meant that they're in Kharkiv in the northeast, there wasn't really enough troops to defend the lines as, as, well as, they, as well as they might want. And the Ukrainians realized this and started building a force to start taking Kharkiv. And it meant that the lines that they eventually went over were really poorly, thinly defended and were, were really poorly armed and, uh, uh, and trained troops. So you, essentially, they had a breakout. So they rolled over the Russian lines and took huge amounts of territory really fast. And the oh, Russians had no reserves in place to try and defend against them. Was it an accidental breakout, Gavin, or was it planned? Because there's echoes of history in that move. There is definitely echoes of history in that move where they convince them they're going to go at one target and yet they have a different... Uh, well, yeah, there, there, is, there, there was some discussion about whether the whole Kherson thing was a feint in order to distract the Russians. But actually, a lot of the best analysts that, that, that you read would say that they were doing both. They were doing both a substantive offensive in Kherson followed by a substantive offensive in Kharkiv, just that they kept the Kharkiv one really quiet and the Russians were ill-prepared for it. And to be honest, as, as the Ukrainian analysts have been pointing out, there's simply not enough Russian troops at all. Like you have, you have I mean, Ukraine is a vast country. You mm -hmm. have a very, very long front line extending all the way from Kharkiv, looping all the way around into Zaporizhia and into Kherson. It's a very, very long front line. And the it, starting in February, the Russians never really had enough troops in the first place to, to try and take or defend that much territory. And the, the Ukrainians have been, remember, the Ukrainians have been assembling and arming since February. So they're, they're saying we have a, a million man army and woman, I should, I should add as well, um, and that 
they've been slowly and short, but surely kind of building up the capacity to to launch these offensives. And the Russians have simply had no response. Can I come in? Sorry, Gavin, because you mentioned that I spoke to a female drone operator uh, yesterday. And I'm going to actually, we're delighted to be joined by Senator Tom Clonan, who's obviously uh, a long history of the, with the Irish military and, and has seen some of the worst things that have happened in terms of historical uh, conflicts, whether it be in the Middle East and we famously in, in Israel, um, Lebanon and, and and those events that happened there. But nonetheless, Tom, you've written a really interesting piece for the journal today. That this is, But there was one thing when I spoke to a, a female drone operator yesterday and she was said to me tears of joy because she she was really taken aback by the success that they'd had. And, you know, um, Tom, can I can I come to you if you don't mind? Because obviously we're sitting here now and we're talking about this. Ukraine kind of went off the radar in, in, in a lot of things. The likes of Gavin has continued to recover it all with, with his with his list, but but we weren't expecting this at all. And even my conversation with two people who were close enough—one in Kharkiv and one in, also involved as a drone operator—they weren't expecting it at all. Uh, the success that they'd had. No, it's been. Um... A very dramatic development. And thanks, Gavin, for your... I was actually sitting here thinking, <laughs> why am I here? Because that was a very uh, comprehensive uh, summary of, of, of what's happened. Um, so I've been writing about this since um, December, but I've been writing about uh, all the major conflicts since 9-11, um, since, since 2001. So I've been, I've been writing about this for these things for 20, 21 years. Um, now, the piece I wrote today, I actually wrote earlier in the week. And uh, when I was writing it, the Ukrainians had, had just made this breakthrough um, and they were hoping to get towards Shevchenkove to Kupiansk. And as I was writing it, the, the, you know, Kupiansk was a an aspirational goal. And then the unthinkable might happen that they might be able to actually isolate Izium. And Izium has been a major jump off point for the Russians. Uh, people will remember back in July and August when they pulverized Severodonetsk, the Russians destroyed Severodonetsk to take it. And then they took Lishyhansk. And when they had taken those two towns, you know, really all of the Luhansk Oblast, the whole of the province uh, was then under Russian control. Job done, done and dusted. So the next objective is Donbass, sorry, Donetsk to, to completely push out to the, the, the edges uh, of that oblast. And this would give Putin some sort of a, a symbolic victory. They were even talking about holding referenda in those two um, regions to sort of copper fasten Russia's control, you know, that they would join Russia proper. So that was the narrative up until this week. And then all of a sudden we've we've had this breakthrough and, and it's reported that Izium has been taken. That That's extraordinary if that's yeah. confirmed because that was, I mean, you would have had tens of thousands of Russian troops um, rooting through Izium as their jump-off point. Um, so I think the Russians obviously are reacting to this. Uh, the, the, this is very embarrassing for Putin. And Putin, like all, uh, you know, these kind of hard men, dictators, they look really strong and impregnable and unassailable until the final moments. People like Putin, like Saddam Hussein and others, uh, Ceausescu and so on, like they unravel, when they unravel, they unravel very, very quickly. I think this is a very dangerous moment for Vladimir Putin and 
for uh, the people who are empowering him in the Kremlin at the moment. That, uh, so I would say, you know, whether or not Putin will take the risk of traveling to Uzbekistan next week to meet Xi Jinping, whether or not, you know, he was originally going there from a position of some considerable strength. And the question was, you know, would Xi Jinping say something at his meeting with Putin to to explicitly endorse the war? But if I were Putin now, I would be thinking very hard about leaving <laughs> leaving the Kremlin or leaving Moscow just at the moment. So there's no doubt that the Russians will try to counterattack uh, and try and block this counteroffensive because it has it could have a domino effect for the Russians. Um, it, it could really collapse um, their hold on Luhansk, which, to be honest with you, I would I would have said I, I, I would not have given any credence to that idea up up to a week or 10 days ago. So it's, it, it is a great uh, victory for, for the Ukrainians. How long it will take the Russians to get some sort of a scratch force together? Because as Gavin has pointed out, they've sent most of their kind of regular units uh, down towards uh, the Kherson and, you know, to try and preserve that corridor between the Crimean Peninsula up around, up through uh, Mariupol. Uh, it's reported that all that's left up in the, in the where, where the Ukrainians are counter are attacking along their axis advance are these Wagner mercenaries and and local militias, yeah. uh, pro Russian militias. You, you say but, that's but, all that's left. They are they are bastards. <laughs> like they are really they, they they these these are people who've done crazy stuff in other like uh, one of our friends is in Syria currently. And they've had to deal with the Wagner group as well. And we've seen what they've done. So like they, there's a, yeah. Can I, can I ask Tom, what's the realistic chances of Russia mount, mounting a counteroffensive in time? And Ukrainians are getting close to the Russian border as well. What are the chances? Will they hold at the border or will they move forward? I, well, the, the, the Russians... You know, we'll we'll try to move troops. I imagine by rail, troops and armored units to get to that area, and then disembark, dismount them, and then try and get them down the route, such as they are, towards the Kharkiv area, um, to try and just contain that Ukrainian front. Like the the Ukrainian axis of advance is quite rapid, and um, by my estimation on Thursday, when I wrote when I wrote the piece that appeared today, now it's updated a little bit. Um, but they were moving approximately um, 10 kilometers, 12 kilometers per day. So that that's quite a rate of, of exploitation. So they're going the, uh, the Ukrainians will, you know, ha- don't have a problem um, with the number of troops that they can put into this. They, they have 400,000 people who are veterans um, since 2014 who would have some have had some combat experience who are still within the kind of the age range for, for military service. Also, the motivation to fight, if you're a Ukrainian fighting and you're you're liberating ground taken by the Russians, and you mentioned, you know, the Wagner group and and the, these Russian groups that have been units that have been put together have been implicated in all sorts of war crimes and, and breaches of the laws of armed conflict and breaches of the Geneva Convention. And so, they, you know, they, they will definitely have the motivation to fight and, and to keep that momentum going. If you're a Russian sent to um, Ukraine, Based on the estimated casualty rates and the initial force of anything up to two hundred thousand, as Gavin was saying, um, then you you have a two in three chance of being either very seriously injured, I mean crippled, or being killed. Jesus, that's, 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 real, that's so if you're a young if yeah. you're a young Russian 
and you've been offered some sort of a contract if you're out in one of the Caucasus republics, um, that's what you're facing. So I think it's going to be difficult for the Russians to uh, meet the momentum, the morale, the motivation to fight, the agility of the Ukrainians within their own country. So they've, they've, they, they, and they're kinetic. They're on the move. If you want to win a war, you've got to be, you know, there has to be uh, momentum. And that's what the, the Ukrainians have achieved. This, this has been a, an unimaginative, yeah. brutal war of attrition. But now they're on the move. And, and this could, this, this is going to give Zelensky a position of some considerable strength from which to negotiate. It puts Putin on the back foot. My only fear, and I'll finish in this, is that in any other scenario, you would say Putin would probably be replaced and there would be negotiations. But Putin is not a reasonable person uh, because this whole gamble was reckless and made no sense to begin with. But also he has access to nuclear weapons and small, so-called small tactical nuclear warheads. So I'd just be a bit nervous about what, what he might be tempted to do when he is uh, trapped. Just to put it in context, these small tactical nuclear weapons they have, they're about one-tenth the size of the weapon that was detonated over Hiroshima or Nagasaki. So you're talking about a weapon that could destroy a town of about 10,000 people. And he might be tempted to deploy something like that at Kramatorsk or Slavyansk or even Izium to destroy something that has been retaken. So I think now is the time for the good Russians, of, of whom I'm sure there are millions, to really, you know, put pressure on the Kremlin to, you know, this this war sh should never have happened. And it has been yeah. a criminal assault on Ukraine. But, you know, short of escalation, we have to find a way of stopping this. And, I, I, and, and, and the Russians need to go get 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 out, go back. It's it's both an inspiring and a very scary scenario that you're painting there, Tom. It is it is, and I, I this is where I'm just going to come to Gavin. Gavin, you were in Ukraine, and you saw the moral of the of the fighters of the people who are over there. Do you think that has changed? Do you think now there is some great resolve to get this finished quickly? I think there's always been great resolve. I think um, I, I was only in I was only in, in Ukraine uh, a few weeks ago just for for personal business reasons, but. The um the, the thing that you take away, I was in I was in Lviv and in Truskovets. The thing you take away from uh being around is that almost in the west of the country is a sense of kind of persistent normality that is abnormal. It's this kind of everybody is going about their business uh in a war, in a country at war. Um and except for the air raid alarms go off and uh you get an alert on your phone saying there's an air raid, uh take shelter. But everybody has pretty steely resolve about what's happening. Um, I think, as to, to go back to your earlier question, I think Ukraine, from a political standpoint, will probably seek to stop at a border. And they'll say, this: we want to go back to the lines of pre-2014, including Crimea. The, Ukrainian, uh, the, the main Ukrainian general wrote a piece last week. It's a very interesting piece because it raises what Tom was talking about, about the, the potential for Putin to use tactical nuclear weapons. And what he says in the piece is, we are going to take Crimea because we have to. And the, his rationale is we can't not take it because otherwise our country will never be secure because of the ability for Russia to strike Ukraine with long range weapons from their, uh, their, their naval base in Sevastopol and, and, and so forth. So this war is not over. It's going to be well into the winter, back into a, probably another spring offensive. Um, th there's kind of two risks, as Tom mentioned. One is if Putin is backed into a corner, what does he do? 
there's kind of two options a lot of the analysts are, are, are talking about on, on Twitter. One is he mobilizes. Now, at the moment, because it's called a special military operation, technically Russia, for its own purposes, is not at war. So there's no mobilize, mass mobilization of their armed forces. But that's there, it, it's not the same as it would have been under the Soviet Union in terms of their ability to mobilize. But he could mobilize and say, right, we're going actually into full-scale war and we're going to mobilize a, a much bigger army and we're going to try and equip them and then we're going to try and reinforce what's going on in Ukraine. Or the second, another second option is that he he employs tactical needs to intimidate the Ukrainians, or as as Tom said, uses on on a on a an urban center with lots of Ukrainian troops on it to try and you know force stem the the advances um, that they're that they're making. We're in a very risky. Like people think, well, we're, there's a war already on. How bad could it get? And you're, well, we're in a very risky situation over the over the coming months. This is getting more and more gloomy and dark, and 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 it's only going to get more and more gloomy and dark. Um, I know. Look, first of all, thanks Tom for jumping on at short notice, and thanks Gavin for a really excellent rundown of of how things are. I I do have to move us on. I want to talk about a few other things, um, but I just think, you know, the idea that tactical nuclear weapons, the idea that we these things, it, it's it is not that not something that we'd like to countenance, and um, all of this is also wrapped up into uh, some of the things our own local politics. I've said it again i get you know really i'm really pissed off about the whole um way we were being told this cost of living crisis we were pointing at ukraine and the, the russian invasion we know what was happening before then we know all these things but there's definitely playing having an impact there i do want to come to dara adelaide um dara, dara you're listening you're sitting there listening to, to all this uh and and I, i'm sure you're thinking you know your party has been very vocal in 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 calling for the, an end to this, this war, but also in 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 saying pushing back against that narrative that I just said that all of these crises that are hitting us at in 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 Ireland, whether it be housing or cost of of electricity and gas utilities, uh, is is somehow just all to do with that. Um, you know, what do you make of of, of the of the conversations when when you hear that and and now people start saying, well, we're going to give you. An ex- another 200 quid off your electricity bill instead of actually doing anything. Well, I think there's something real kind of um, gross that's occurring that uh, people's solidarity that they have with Ukrainians through the war, you know, people are willing to make sacrifices, obviously, because what has happened and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. And, you know, this is happening across Europe. I kind of trying to use that as, well, you know, the cost of living crisis is because of what's happening in Ukraine and use, use people's solidarity to kind of... Uh, and make them accept what's going on but the kind of overarching point is and i you know we've seen this again and again the cost of living crisis is the inflation crisis is coming from corporate profits you know uh we're talking about the energy crisis uh all the big oil companies shell bp uh chevron they've made uh, they've doubled or tripled uh their profits they're making uh you know eye-watering amounts of money that's where you know, this cost of living crisis is coming from uh, and as well not just the oil companies but the energy companies then are also making profits on top of that so it's building up uh you know vulture funds and landlords are making a lot of money as well which is putting the cost of living up again so i feel like th- there's this thing occurring where uh ukraine is almost getting the war in ukraine is getting a lot of blame for the cost of living in ireland and of course you know um the um the sanctions on Russia to do with um, energy has certainly made gas prices extremely volatile. But there's a lot of other things that are occurring that is kind of getting swept under the rug and we don't really get to hear about. I think it's going to be especially difficult now going into the winter. Uh, it's already very difficult to heat people's homes, to keep the electricity on. And I've been doing a lot of canvassing for the Cost of Living Coalition. There's a protest coming up on the 24th in uh, town if people are free. 
Uh, but I mean, Jesus Christ, I've never heard so many bleak stories. Uh, I was talking to a woman yesterday who's having trouble affording medication. And it's getting to that point where the the kind of satirical view you have of the American health system and, you know, how things happen there, you're starting to see it in Dublin. And um, I mean, especially now that we're going into winter, people are going to have to put on the heating on or maybe they won't be able to at all. Um, things are going to get a lot worse. And I don't think we can keep trying to blame um, the war on this where there's so much profit being made uh, nowhere near Ukraine or Russia, you know, right in our uh, kind of just, back door. Just, just to back that up, uh, back that up on one of the things that, and people can, I don't know if anybody wants to have a go at me for this, but if you recall during the pandemic, one of the greatest uh, wealth transfers in the bottom of the top took place, you know, globally, whether, whether it was um, from people who were struggling, we saw more billionaires created, more billionaires grow their, grow, grow their wealth. We're actually seeing the continuation of that profit taking in this crisis so you never waste the crisis as the expression goes you know and um mark tony, sorry i know you wanted so, to come yeah in. there was you've been watching the thinkings tony um <laughs> what you know do you see any solutions coming out of of government at the moment well no this is i suppose this is all part of it isn't it where and again i'll go back to dara i think and maybe uh, shamim might have a because shamim has more experience of talking to people who are really feeling the pinch than i do but they're talking yet again about subsidies so it's you know a couple of hundred quid off your off your gas electricity bill in in a, in a couple of months and then one in january again and but all that does is the same same way that say maybe hap operates it keeps that ceiling. It keeps that 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 profit margin to, wired in. Whether it's for that, as Dara said, that an institutional landlord, or it's now going to be for these companies that are making huge profits. So, uh, we're we're again talking about subsidies, and uh, rather than maybe looking at the underlying issues and actually saying, can we can how do we fix this in the longer term? Uh, and I know Gavin, you've been like very vocal on the climate catastrophe that's 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 coming as well. But I mean, we haven't made. You would think, Dara, that this is an opportunity to start moving away from fossil fuels, yet here we are now um, saying we're going to subsidize these. Well, this is like, well, the first the, uh, first thing I'll come in on that point is that, you know, for years we've been talking about having more renewable energy. And every single time we're told gas is the renew renewable energy that we're going to use, we'll use it to get off uh, fossil fuels. And it's landed us in this crisis now because we've been lied to for so long about gas being green. It's not, you know, where we have some of the highest potential for wind energy anywhere else in Europe. And uh, we've instead focused for years and we've subsidized the fossil fuel industry. Gas is a fossil fuel. There's nothing, you know, maybe it's slightly greener, but it's still the same, has the same issues. But what I would say is there's a kind of ideological battle going on now about, and we've seen it before in housing, like you said, with HAP, we are absolutely willing to spend billions of euros. This magic money tree exists and it's always used to pump money into things like the HAP scheme or anything that will pump money into the hands of landlords or investment funds, that sort of thing. But what the government is not willing to do is use that money instead to do things like build social housing that will bring people off the housing list or, you know, just build houses in general. I mean, when Ireland was a lot poorer, we managed to build massive social housing uh, estates in places like Marino and um Ballyfermot, uh, we've completely walked away from that. So there's an ideological thing, you know, neoliberalism, that we're willing to pump money into the market to fund people to do things, but not to actually solve the core issue. Is with uh, the same with um, 
this kind of uh, cost of living crisis when electricity is becoming so, so expensive and a lot of it is going directly to profits. We're not willing to use the laws that are already there and these laws exist. Um, I forgot the name of the act, uh, but we're willing, we're able to put uh, caps on energy prices. But instead of that, uh, the government is going to say, OK, you know, you're going to get 300 euro off your energy prices. It's going to go directly to the energy companies. So it, it does not it incentivizes them essentially to keep the prices where they are because they're going to get that money anyway. Um, I think. Oh, it, it, well, it's, look, it's good. there was one thing. The Irish Times had an article. I don't know if anybody saw it. Maybe, maybe uh, this is I'm showing myself up for reading the Irish Times, and I'll be, I'll be, I'll be killed for that. But nonetheless, um, they had, you know, how much is a shower going to cost you? How much is boiling the kettle going to cost you? It's 2022, and we're talking about if you're in the shower for more than five minutes. Uh, no, sorry, ten minutes. We're, you know, we're we're saying average shower use is now going to be like four four euro and eighteen cent. This is where we are now. And, but it's not just it, it's not just uh, money going to the wrong places, Tony. There's also mismanagement of money. You were you read something there about the ah, HSE. Look, no, there's there's trouble. There's trouble. Like like this again. The, we you can rail against and Martin. You always do about, about journalists, but they always again some great some great stuff. And Aaron Rogan did some good stuff about what's happening on the dispute between the HSE and the budgets. And we're coming into winter plan times. We're coming into budget season. The one thing I will say. Is please go and have a listen to Rory's conversation with um with the had Social Justice Ireland Neary and Sip Two's Michael Taft, and they talked about what's at, so we're talking about talking about the budget um availability. They're going to spend six point seven billion. Uh, I think Michael works out the figure that's actually available to the to the government is somewhere between. He said it's actually unspendable. It's somewhere between twelve and fifteen billion if we played within the debt to GDP service ratio rules that the EU used to insist on. We're never going to spend anything near like that. But it just shows they have a war chest that we've never had in the history of this state. Now, whether you want to say it's sustainable you know do corporation taxes or whatever it is sorry gavin i see you want to come and, in uh, i i think there's like there's a couple of war chests and i that we're not exploiting one is i think i think irish people have collected personal savings of 180 billion euros why are we not building why are we not why is the government not issuing housing bonds where i can get a return by investing in a housing bond and the government builds houses <laughs> like hey, there's a lot Gav, of money Gav, around Gav, Gav, i know a fellow who who helped build some of the SPVs for the vulture funds and said, we should be doing this for people with, with normal savings, but we've kept, we yeah. focused that on foreign investors. It's a really good, it's yeah, a really, yeah, yeah. There, there's just, there's lots of, there's lots of money sitting in people's bank account and it's not getting any returns. And you're like, well, what, like a bit like the SSIAs back in, back in the mid two thousands, you could imagine another scheme where it's like, well, everybody in Ireland wants to see more housing and we keep being told, well, there's not enough money or we, the government can't borrow the money or whatever. And you're like, but if I have savings and I'd like to get a return on those savings, can I not just put them into a government housing bond that we can start building houses? But second to that, going back to, to, to what Dara was saying about renewable energy, I mean, there's two things. One is during the week, there was a story saying that the, they're going to ask uh, public body buildings, public authority buildings to turn down the heating a bit. And to kind of put every people on put people on the same floor rather than having Tom's going to be freezing the Shannon to between between different floors. The, the problem is we're in a climate emergency now for several years. Why wasn't that being done already? But yeah. the second thing is we're still in public consultation for the deployment of solar PV across the country because because of a, a notional thing about um, the glint or glare that comes from solar panels near to airports. So we still have have not re reformed the planning rules. On a, to putting as many solar panels as you want in your house. Now, the solar panels in and of themselves are not sufficient to solve everything, but they are a part of the mix of solutions that we need. Because we know, we can, we can reasonably deduce that in the next several years, every public building is eventually going to have solar PV across every school, every building in the country is going to have solar PV. 
why are we dragging our heels? And why have we dragged our heels for so long? Because I think the sense of emergency when it comes to the climate is simply not there because people are not thinking long term. The same true of, of um, uh, retrofitting houses. It's still going to slow. And again, we're still, and I, I'm going to come across very, very socialist here, which is not necessarily a bad, bad thing, but we're still using market-based solutions for what is should be a state solution, which is I shouldn't be kind of landed with well, you should apply now for this grant to the SEI. Maybe you can get this, maybe you can get that. There should just be gangs of lads turning up to your house to retrofit your house and say, what day are you free? Can we start on Monday? What day do you want us to fit the solar panels? Just and, do and, the whole but, thing but at scale because we have to go fast. Everybody, and big, Everybody's and not nodding their head. I know it's a podcast, folks. You won't see this, but everybody's nodding their head in but agreement. Tony, with how long have I been arguing that the state should be hiring a team of guys directly who are building the skills, who know how to do this efficiently and who just can't get it through to people that the state needs to do this? And you know, like what I always think about is the amount of people who emigrated abroad who had like building skills and stuff and they went off to Australia where you know they could actually use those skills and uh, you know there was no jobs here for them and there's a whole generation of people who are now uh, as well this is you know a completely different point but people who are going into college who would be much better suited or who would want to do uh, apprenticeships but there's so many people stuck uh, it's difficult to get apprenticeships it's difficult to uh, get the right qualifications all that sort of stuff there should be a public body that's doing all this building work maybe in the future it'll be building homes but at the very least retro fitting people's homes there's a massive amount of and i get this every time on campus in as well if you're in places with loads of social housing people who are living in uh uh damp uh dreary houses that you know could easily be retrofitted that wouldn't just bring down the cost of living for them but then would also bring down the amount of fossil fuels that we're using so like i you know it's one of those things again that it's like if there's not some sort of market incentive for it it's not going to happen so therefore we need to argue that it should be the government doing this it should be democratic we should be hiring people to do this maybe start on the social homes the people with the worst uh, uh, this is where i want to come in i want to say something uh, tom um uh accessible housing never gets mentioned either and you're going back into the shandas and you've been talking about the rights of people with disabilities and shamim you've been talking about again when we think we're experiencing a crisis the migrant community's probably been experienced two years earlier and we're only getting to, we're only getting a sight of it but the but the exclusion that happens to the people with people with disabilities tom in these conversations the, the right to live independently it's it's something that you know needs to be addressed in this yeah well it, it doesn't like the right doesn't doesn't exist in Ireland. Uh, if you're disabled, you're you're going to be homeless. There is one thousand three hundred young people, either who have acquired brain injuries or disabilities, who are living in nursing homes. In in the Republic, that's where you go. Um, my son Owen, he's he's twenty. Um, he we we put him on the on the social housing list in Dunleary Ratdown. Um, when he was 18 and we were told the waiting list for him is about 22 years. So I'll be, I'll be nearly 80. Immediately Martin's age. <laughs> I'll be nearly 80. Now, yeah, that's right. By Thanks. the way, Martin is my father. I should have said it <laughs> yeah. just to declare that, uh, that conflict of interest. But look, I was very struck listening to Shamim at the start and, and, and listening to Dara. Um, so I, I got elected to this channel in March. So I'm new to that environment. I'm there about six months. And one of the first things that happened uh, is the first things uh, as part of that learning process is that from the moment I got elected, I'm getting hundreds and hundreds of emails every day from people all around Ireland who are in crisis. And it is it, it is the most 
anxiety producing thing to read these because I'm I've seen what's happened in the last 10 years austerity and I I was great great to hear you say it Dara the neoliberal agenda is writ large in this country uh, for the last 10 years now we had all of the intellectual and ethical failures of the Celtic Tiger and we were and, and that government that administration and and the people that they empowered they they marched us off a cliff and we had the crash the debt was socialized you know we we i mean the idea that we were bailed out is a nonsense we bailed out the banks and the developers and the gamblers so the get debt was socialized but austerity is a different matter they made a virtue out of inflicting pain on the most vulnerable people in irish society they made a virtue out of it and the kenny's government I was at a lunch in 2011 uh, that Enda Kenny was the guest speaker and he, I asked him, it was opened up for Q&A at the end and I said, as Taoiseach, will you promise to stop imposing cuts on people with disabilities and the most vulnerable in our society? And Enda Kenny said, he said, I'm going to be honest with you, Tom. He said, you love your son and what you do to support your son is admirable. You do that as a parent and as a father and you do that because you love him. And he said, that is a private matter. It is not a matter that the state ought to be involved in. So there's the, as you said, Dara, that's the ideological imperative behind everything that has happened. And, you know, Leo Varadkar would share those very, very conservative views of the role of the state. So housing, the situation that we're in, it's not an accident. It's a deliberate policy. And, and Negative equity has been removed. The banks have been recapitalized. The the HAP payments billions are going uh, to developers, or sorry, rather those. But it, but it is it's ideological, Tom. Is it's, is it's what ideological? It is. And so I would say, I got elected by the absolute skin of my teeth. Now I'm a retired army officer from the Irish Army, Tony. Jeez. I know, I know. I've got to be killed. For that. <laughs> no, oh, God's no, sake. He's got, I, I, and he's I'm from England. He made a mistake because yeah, he'll oh, yeah, kill me afterwards like, for the it, introductions. You know. <laughs> I, I don't I should I should be the most conservative person in the room, but I have been radicalized by the experience of, of our family. Uh educate, you know, the commodification of education, the commodification of housing, the commodification of care and health. It's the neoliberal agenda. And I think the next election is going to tell a tale. Are Irish people still going to continue to vote for the parties that are collaborating with this agenda? And I mean, I think it's the cruelest thing in Ireland if, where if I, young people cannot have the modest aspiration of a roof over their head. You know, you can't even get nurse students now to go on placement in hospitals around the country because there's no accommodation for them. And I'll just finish up on this. In in the 1970s, Martin, um, when you were in your in your early 30s, uh, <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I was at the bottom of the road in Finglas with my little sister, you know, we playing, and we saw the houses for Finglas South and Finglas West going past on the backs of trucks. These were prefabricated houses. And I remember my little sister saying, oh, look at the houses on the trucks. Now, back in 1972 or 71, Ireland hadn't, um, you know, a, pen, a, a pot to piss in, basically. We were penniless. It was before we were even members of the European Union, but we were building houses. Since um, 2005 or 2006, I think our population has increased from 4 million to approximately 5 million. And they're not, they're not building houses. So whatever happens next, 
there has to be a, a break. There has to be an alternative to that ideological imperative. Dara likes market solutions, Tom. No, we, 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 we're going to have to move it on, but I just want to say, you're, yeah. look, it's it's a really, really important point. And again, just if I go to Shamim, just, just to get one comment on that, Shamim, you you know, you we're talking about students now and have to get accommodation. You're, you would see people working, sharing, you know, six to a bedroom you know that this is the this is the migrant experience is, is, is even worse yeah and unfortunately as you might know um being uh, in living in shared accommodation is something that has been um associated with being a migrant especially of certain nationalities brazilian students who come here and um as I think uh, one of my sources mentioned, it's, it's something that racializes people because um, I had a Brazilian source that says something very interesting that um, she said that she saw herself as white when she was she was living in Brazil. When she came here, she was she was constantly racialized and she now sees herself as a person of color. And um, and part of it is just living in crowded accommodations and just seeing it as completely normal, you know, uh, and as part of being from a certain ethnicity. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to say that. And then uh, on what the people with disability is, I just want to stress about how it's difficult for people with disabilities to um, do the family reunification process, how to bring families over, because one of the conditions would be you have to be able to work. You're working and you're making a certain amount of money, but how did these two don't go together? Because if you're disabled, you might be on disability allowance. You might not be able to work. That that's like a extra obstacle in the way of people trying really, to bring really families over. Great, great point. Because we've seen that with people who are two medical professionals working here. One wanted to bring their mother, who was, you know, not unwell, but literally unable to work, and was told that the mother wasn't coming to to live off the state, folks. The mother was coming to to help with the with the childcare at home. And they were told, "Oh no, she might be she might be looking for a disability pension." Yeah. So yeah. strange. And strange just just thing. as Tony mentioned pensions, and I'm going to very quickly mention this. There's a piece about RT today about RT workers being very dissatisfied with the deal that RT has put on the table. Yes, they should be dissatisfied, absolutely, one hundred percent. And RT workers are getting short shift, and we should be supporting them 100% because they are only the first and high profile. That's all. They're not the most. Um, if I may mention the Geological Survey of Ireland, where there are scientists, scientists who are labeled as self-employed, absolutely ridiculous stuff. I have several other groups who are coming forward. Mental health counselors, another one. Keep an eye on that. That one's going to come up in the newspapers. But this is ridiculous and it is robbing the pension. And that pension fund could be used to borrow, to build houses. And until we start to deal with bogus self-employment, which is costing at least one billion every year, and I estimate far, far more, that we we are stuck where pensions are going to keep rising. And it is theft. It is fraud. They're robbing the pension fund. And we need to put a stop to it straight away. And I wish that the political parties, all of them, would get their arse in gear and look at this as the biggest fraud ever perpetrated in this country. Do something about it. Sorry about that, Tony. Last thing I wanted to say was, Let's get on to Gareth Brooks. I heard a great story. I love that. I love. I love that you got his name wrong as well. He said it's it's just Gareth, not Gareth. 
Garth, <laughs> Garth Brooks. I love the story about the man on the train who said that the can- the concert was cancelled because of the Queen's death, and the women got absolutely irate because they thought it was cancelled. Anybody else hear any good stories about it, Tony? No, no, there's just been, I, I live close enough to Croke Park. So if I open the windows, unfortunately, I can, I can hear him. But I believe the best, the best comment I saw, saw said was it, it was very like, um, if Kildare were playing Kildare in the All Ireland final, I thought that was a beautiful thing. Every well, I, I thought if, if you could put Gareth Brooks and kind of get a little bit of preacher in him as well, you know, do a little bit of rich, that's Tom, a Tom, you, you went, in did Ireland. You, did you go? No. Did anybody go? No. No, no, that is. We must be the. So, I so, would have so, gone so, had for, I got no, the ticket. If four hundred thousand people went, and we're in a population of about what four, so that's yeah, yeah we must Wouldn't be the only th- six people who haven't gone. <laughs> this must be one of the very few. I did but, see that he was he was down around Sheriff Street, and he was he was in Portland Row, with, Portland Row, yeah, with, yeah, with, the, he, with the with the nannies and and the, and the I, hat that's, sellers. That's lovely, and I think that is lovely, and I think. That's that's a real spirit lifter, and I like to see it. And it's no harm in people taking enjoyment where they can get it at the present moment. Shamim and, Gar- and, and Gavin are going to do um, uh, unanswered prayers, and then Dara's going to sing us out with friends in low places, folks. So I'm thrilled. Um, so so if everybody, maybe we turn on all the mics and you can all sing along. No, no, we won't did, go I, into- did I hear though? Did, did I hear? I, I maybe I heard this incorrectly, but he sang as Joe Biden's inauguration. And I heard Garth, Garth Brooks sang, yeah, yeah. and I heard that he's a Republican. I, I wouldn't and have. This was, this was a gesture of sort of like uh, kind of you know moving away from the bipolar thing. It wouldn't be. Politics. It wouldn't be unusual for someone from that uh, that 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 kind of um, genre to to be. You know, they might they probably play golf for the PGA as well, and and uh, and and think that tax is theft. You know, there's an element of there's an element of that. But um, look, we might leave it there. We've delayed everybody. It's gone. It's gone over time. I really appreciate um, Gavin, Shamim, Tom, Dara, uh, and we'll call him what, what we call Michael. Because you got everybody else's name wrong. Michael McMahon <laughs> did a great job today, Michael. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much. And Tom, well done in the British War. Uh, yeah. Very yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks for hanging me out to dry. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to cut that out somehow. Yeah. Listen, Listen we'll, lovely uh, to see you, Gavin, because I've only met you on, on social media. And it's lovely to meet you, Shamim and Dara. And uh, it, it gives me great hope for what's going to happen next in this country, because we need an absolute shift, paradigm shift, and and it's fundamentally an ideological one. We need to value people and value the, as, as social goods that need to be supported by the state. And, you know, the rest will look after itself. <laughs>